Second Peter chapter number one, we are in a series that I have entitled Steps, and the concept is that the Christian journey, uh, a lot of people, and I think the enemy does this to our minds, but sometimes um, it can feel overwhelming, you know, especially if, if you develop certain patterns up into a certain point in your life. Uh, becoming a Christian can seem like a very overwhelming lifestyle to live because it, it, in many ways it's, it's polar opposite to how a lot of us developed character and developed personality. And so being a Christian sometimes seems like a daunting task until you discover what biblical Christianity is. Right, religion is 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 impossible for anybody to uphold, but you can uphold a relationship with Jesus Christ because you don't have to hold him; he holds you. And the process is not complicated; it's 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 a step by step by step process. The Bible refers to the Christian journey uh, as walking in the Spirit. God never told us to to sprint; he never told us that we had to run a hundred meter dash. He just simply said, "Walk." in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking means you just put one foot in front of the other and anyone can do that, right? Uh, the Bible says that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God does not intend to overwhelm us with truth. We don't have to have five years figured out. All we've got to figure out is how to take another step. And so that's what this series is all about. And so, and, and we've broken down uh, specific steps that we have to take uh, to really get to a point where we are we're really living the life that Christ died to give to us. So look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The author introduces himself, Simon Peter. Uh, he's a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He considered himself uh, the, the highest calling, the highest privilege in his life. Uh, he considered that to be a servant of Jesus Christ. No higher title. He didn't declare, declare him, I'm Dr. Simon Peter, or I'm Professor Simon Peter. He just said, you know what, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. There's no higher calling than to, to, than to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we see the humility of the, of the human penman here. Uh, we know that scripture was given by inspiration of God, but God did use people to pen down his word. So verse number one, again, he says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So how do you get more grace and more peace multiplied? Okay, I'm gonna, uh, this is an open book test. Um, the answer is in verse two. So how do you get more grace and peace multiplied to you? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Verse three, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's given us access to everything. God essentially has given you a checkbook to write out checks from his account. So when we think about the riches of Christ and we think about the peace of God and, and, and the knowledge of God and all those things, it says that God has given us uh, access to all these things through the knowledge of him who called you by glory in virtue, verse four, by which we have been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence. This is not something that you can be slack about, okay? If you wanna get in shape physically, you have to get purposeful about that, amen? I'm a living specimen of that, of the opposite. What happens when you don't really have that much drive in that area, but uh, I'm just kidding, I look great. Uh, but. Uh, 
But in the spiritual realm, it's the same way. It says, he, says, so, he says, for this reason, give all diligence. You can't just, you're not just going to accidentally live this victorious life. Anything that's worth doing is going to cost you something. Anything that's worth doing is going to take work. It's going to take time. It's going to take purpose. It's going to take drive. You're going to have to get some of these things, right? It's not all, the only thing you got, in free, got for free in life was salvation. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And so salvation is 100% free. You can't do anything to earn it. You cannot do anything to keep it. That is 100% a free gift. Everything else is going to cost you something. It's going to take work. It's going to take time. It's going to take serious diligence on our part. And so giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. But here's the great promise. For if these things are yours and abound, you will, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 9 defines for us why I believe most Christians reach a certain point in their spiritual growth and then never go any far, farther than that. It says in verse 9, he who lacks these things, what we just covered, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. In other words, got to a point that you forgot you were the biggest wretch that God ever saved. If you ever get to that point, you're in trouble. If you ever get to a point that you think you're better than somebody else in the world, you're in bad shape. So he says, he says if, if a person lacks these things, if you, if you don't get serious about this, honestly, if you don't get serious about this, if you're not diligent about it, if you lack these things, you will be short-sighted, even to blindness, to the point that you can't see spiritually any longer. All you can see is your religiousness and your rules. That's all you can see is yourself because God is trying to get your focus off of you and get your focus on Jesus. And when our eyes are on Jesus, everything else seems to prioritize itself. And so I want to talk to you about some steps. We're taking steps, and I'll walk you through some of this process and give you some new material today. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Father, it's an honor for me to share the truth of your word. And Lord, I love the word of God. I love the fact that you've given us a manual, a manuscript. Lord, I've been studying it now for almost 21 years. That sounds crazy. I can't possibly be that old. But for almost 21 years, Lord, I have dug into the truths of your word, and, and I've never been bored. I've never gotten to a point that I figured it all out. I've never gotten to a point that I feel like I've exhausted all the depths and all the riches of the word of God. So thank you for such a living, breathing, alive book of truth that has been imparted to us. Now today, Lord, may we, may we aptly look. Uh, into the pages of the Bible, specifically here in Second Peter chapter 1. And God, I pray that you'd unpack within our hearts the truth that we need to receive. Again, the beauty of your word is the fact that I might not even say what a person needs to hear, but because your word is so powerful and your spirit is so present, you can speak into them exactly what they need, whether the words ever come from my mouth or not. So God, be present with us. Please be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd guide us into all truth, for we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm thankful for the math that God has given us uh, in Second Peter chapter number one because it's simple math. If you can add, you can figure out the formulas that God has laid out for us in Second Peter chapter one. So he says, add to your faith virtue. 
Okay, and he goes on to, to, to give us other concepts and other principles. But he begins with the statement, add to your faith virtue. That statement should be carried, or at least the nature of that statement should be carried throughout the rest of the text. Okay, that's the implication. So when it says add to your faith virtue, as we read it, we should read it this way. Add to your faith virtue, and add to your virtue knowledge, and add to your knowledge self-control, and add to your self-control perseverance. And so you get the pattern. You understand that he's saying one plus one equals two, right? Two plus two equals four. Four plus four equals 33 or something, I don't know. But uh, no, honestly, so he's just giving us these simple math steps, right? Add to your faith virtue. Uh, normally when we have studied this text in the past, I say we loosely, but when I've heard teaching on it, honestly, in the past, until now when God gave me this, this revelation, uh, until now I've always taught it sort of as as singular principles, okay? So we'll, we'll, we'll walk through this and we'll preach on faith. And then we'll walk through it and we'll, we'll preach on temperance. Then we'll walk through it and we'll preach on, you see what I'm saying? We take, we've itemized the, the, the steps that God's given us, but in reality, the steps are adding one to the other. Adding to your faith virtue, that's a step. Adding to your virtue knowledge, that's a step. And so we've got to follow this process. And so I'm going to give you a little, just a little review if you haven't been here. How many of you have been here for every message thus far in this series? Let me see your hand. <clears throat> you're awesome. And so the rest of you are awesome too, just not as awesome. But um, no, I'm kidding. But so because of that, I want to, I want to walk you through <clears throat> these processes that we've gone through. So faith plus virtue, we said, equals demonstrable faith. Faith that can be demonstrated. Faith plus virtue. Virtue means strength from straining. It's like putting more weight on the bar so you can increase your strength. So virtue means strength from straining. I'm increasing the pressure in my life, not so that I'll get weaker, but because more resistance equals more strength as I train and I push and I build. So add to your faith virtue. That's demonstrable faith. Faith that can be demonstrated. Faith should not be an invisible hypothesis in your life. Faith should be something that can be seen. People ought to see your faith. I know that sounds crazy because we always talk of faith like it's just some, just some, just some, just some hypothetical ideology or some, some strange thing that Christians talk about. But faith ought to be visible. People ought to be able to look at your life and see that you're a person of faith. Not just hear you talk about it, and I think you should talk about it. But they ought to see your faith. So faith plus virtue equals demonstrable faith. Virtue plus knowledge equals definable faith. You need to get to the point that you can define what you believe in. Right? <laughs> Nothing spiritual about being ignorant. Ignorance is not spiritual. Amen. I mean, I, I know we've quantified spirituality by ignorance many times. Well, bless God, that's just what the Bible says. You know one verse, I'm going to grab it out of context and throw it at everybody. Like Chinese stars. <laughs> Take that. But the Bible says add to your virtue knowledge. You need to really get grounded in the Word. Get to know the Bible because the Bible is the revelation of who God is. In the Word of God, we see His character, we see His purpose, we see His person, we see His love, we see His mercy. And so the Word of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we want to get to know Him better, so we've got to get to know His Word. Add to your virtue, knowledge, uh, definable faith. Add to your knowledge, self-control. We call that disciplined faith. Disciplined faith. Add to your knowledge, self-control. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, or another version says knowledge makes one arrogant. I know you've never met any people like this, but I've met some very arrogant Christians. 
think they have a corner on truth, a corner on God. Amen? Well, why is that? It's because they've never gone past the point of knowledge. They've, they've, they've accumulated a little bit of knowledge, Bible knowledge, good stuff, but, but out of context and, and out of place, you can be very harmful with the Word of God. It's a sword. The Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So you can cut people and you can hurt people with it, or you can use it as a scalpel to be a surgeon to apply truth where it's, where it's needed in a loving, compassionate way, and you can help be a healer through the Word of God. And so knowledge plus self-control, discipline, faith. Uh, self-control plus perseverance, we call that determined faith. Determined faith. You've got to get to the point that you're just determined. You're going to dig your heels in. You're going to stand even when all the winds and the storms and everything's coming against you. You're going to just stand on your faith in Christ. Determined faith. Y'all act like you've heard this before. I saw how many of you have been here for the whole series. So don't act like you've heard all this. But I don't have time to unpack each point again. Uh, and then we talked last week about persever- perseverance plus Godliness equals dynamic faith. There is a type of faith that is dynamic. Let me take over the screen if you don't mind. Uh, uh, So we talked about dynamic faith. Tell me if I did it wrong and I'll fix it. Okay. Uh, Dynamic faith is, is this faith where we begin to morph into the image of Jesus Christ. Godly. Right, We sort of talked about that word last week. If you add L-Y to any word or pronoun, uh, it, means, it means to act like. So if we say manly, that means you act like me. Just making sure you're still here. Um, manly means to act like a man. Right? So if you add L-Y at the end, it means you act like. So godly, adding, adding L-Y to, to God means that we begin to act like God. Not God's little g, but we begin to emulate God himself. We begin, to, we begin to resemble the image of God. And that's actually what he was saying here uh, when he says in verse number four, he says that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Like when you begin to add these things to your life, you will become partakers, you will become partners, you will come into this fellowship with the divine nature. Your creator will become so much a part of you that when people see you, they begin to see Jesus. Somebody coined the, 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 the phrase, they said, you are the only Bible that most people will ever read. That's such a great and true statement. If you claim Christ as your Savior, even if you just write Christian uh, uh, on your religious views on an application and they begin to identify you as a Christian, you are the only Bible that those people around you most of the time are going to read. And so what they see in you ought to be more of God and less of you. Add to your virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, self-control, self-control, perseverance, godliness, uh, or perseverance, uh, godliness, and uh, and then the next one. So I'm going to write this out for you because I want you to I want you to see how how simple uh, God has made this in our lives. Um, he says that we ought to add to. This is why I quit using paper notes. I'm going backwards. Uh, he says we need to add to our perseverance uh, what the Bible calls brotherly kindness, and so we see this. Oh, wrong thing. I am so, like, techie, in case you can't tell. Um, So he said, add to your, what was the last one, godliness? I'm so confused, why did I do this? Godliness. 
plus brotherly kindness. Feel like you're in school again? Equals brotherly, uh, godliness plus brotherly kindness equals what we're going to call, let me find it, developed faith. I know I should have memorized this. Developed faith is when you really reach a point of maturity. We all ought to grow into this point, this place as Christians where we actually become mature believers in Christ, like where we become the type of people that other Christians want to begin to be like. You ever met a Christian? If, if you've been in this journey very long, you probably have people that you look up to as mentors in the Christian journey. Well, the reality is every believer ought to eventually become a mentor, right? Every, every disciple ought to become a teacher who can make other disciples. And so adding to godliness, brotherly kindness equals a developed faith. The two words brotherly kindness come from one Greek word, Philadelphia, which literally means brotherly love, brotherly kindness, all right? So here's what that, here's what that really means when you flesh it out in a, in a practical way. Brotherly kindness means that we need to learn to be kind to people. Ain't that crazy? You ever heard anybody preach in church that you need to be nice? Revolutionary, isn't it? Hey, Christian, here's an amazing way to represent Jesus. Be nice. Be nice to people. Learn what it is to be nice to people. Learn what it is to treat people like brothers and sisters. Now, the reason we can't really wrap our heads around that is because most of us didn't treat our brothers and sisters very well either. So what he's saying is the way you should have treated your brother or your sister. No, but here's the reality for most of us. All right, here's the reality for most of us as siblings, all right? My brother and I, my, I have all my, all my, I've got all half siblings, okay? I was the only child between my mom and dad. I know you can't tell. I'm not actually an only child, but I'm the only child between my mom and dad. I have half siblings, and my, the, the youngest next to me uh, is 13 years older than I am. And so growing up having to fight that dude was quite a deal. Six foot two, probably six foot three before he hurt his back. You know what I'm saying? I shrunk him down to size a little bit. Big guy. But I'm not going to lie to you. There were times that me and him getting knocked down, drag out. I'm talking about duke it out by the time I got old enough to handle myself, right? And by the time he got to the point he didn't want to put up my mouth anymore. When I stopped being a little kid and started being the teenager, you know. So there, came, there were times that he and I would get knocked down, drag out fights. I'm talking about rolling around on the ground beating each other, wrestling around. This one time, me and my brother got in a fight, and I had a bunch of, bunch of friends at the house. We were having a Bible study or drinking. I can't remember what we were doing, but uh, <laughs> no, we were drinking. That was bad. That was bad. Um, but I was only 16 years old, lost, and uh, had some buddies at the house. We were drinking and just, just partying. And my brother and I, man, we got into it about something, and I was getting the best of him. I'm not lying. I was getting the best of him. And I, and I had him, and I was just about to drop the hammer on him, and I, and I just couldn't punch him in the face for some reason that day. And I, so I let him up, and I was like, you blankety blank, get off me, and whatever. Let him get up. Well, man, when I let him get up, that dirty sucker grabbed me, threw me up on the hood of his Jeep, and be, commenced to come, and, you know what I'm saying? Like, he wasn't as merciful toward me as I was toward him. Well, a friend of mine that was there grabbed him and just clocked him right upside the head. Well, guess who I went after? 
I was like, what are you doing? You'll hit my brother. And I'm in his face. My brother's bleeding. And I was like, you know, man, you don't hit. So here's the deal. I can punch my brother in the face, but you can't. That's the principle. The lesson for today is I can hit him, but you better not. And that's how most of us are, right? That's that, that's that deep love. We might have little spats. We might have little arguments. We might not get along all the time. But deep down inside, ain't nobody going to touch my family, right? Like, I will mess you up bad because you don't mess with family. And, and truth be told, if we grew up in any sort of family whatsoever, and I understand not everybody had that luxury, but if we grew up in any sort of family whatsoever, there becomes this deep abiding relationship that really no matter what happens, it should never separate us to a point where we can't come to a place where we still hug and we still love on each other and we still have this, this expression of brotherly kindness toward one another, okay? So maybe family is a bad illustration, but that's the best I got. Brotherly kindness in the Christian context is simply this. We ought to learn what, how to treat people. Brotherly kindness. A mean-spirited Christian is not a spirit-filled Christian. I want to say that slow so that it sinks into your heart. A mean-spirited Christian is not a spirit-filled Christian. A Christian with a harsh bitter, hateful, vengeful, angry spirit is not filled with the Holy Spirit and quite possibly is not a Christian at all. Because we have identified Christianity, and I say this so often because I'm trying to tear some of this garbage down. We have identified Christianity with a list of rules and don'ts and do's and whatnots. Right? And that's how we have defined Christianity. When really Christianity, even, even the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ's birth in, birth in Bethlehem, according to the angelic host that sang at his birth, according to the angels, the very presence of God in the world was to bring peace and goodwill toward men. The very presence of Christ is to bring peace and goodwill toward men. And unfortunately, that's not the first thing that comes to mind most of the time when outsiders look at Christianity as a whole. <laughs> I love to look at your faces when I say this kind of stuff because it's not it really shouldn't be like that heavy. But it is because we've, we've just gotten into these ruts of what we think Christianity is supposed to look like. Right? We think Christianity is supposed to look like me standing on a street corner with a sign that says, turn or burn. <laughs> Wearing a t-shirt says, you know, repent or perish. I'm going to wear that t-shirt and that's going to get everybody converted to Jesus. Now I know, I know Jesus said that, but did you know Jesus said that to religious people? Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just put that in your contextual pipe and smoke it. Right? So, so we've identified Christianity as wearing Christian t-shirts. And I'm for Christian t-shirts, unless they're mean-spirited. Uh, I'm, I'm for Christian bumper stickers, unless they're mean-spirited. I'm for that. But the fact is, Christianity is not defined by what we wear or what we look like. Christianity is defined by the spirit that we possess within us and the spirit that we emanate from us. And so a mean-spirited Christian is not a spirit-filled Christian and, and, and is questionably a Christian at all. Because Christ came to make us new. 
He came to renew our hearts. He came to renew our minds. And a mean-spirited Christian is not a spirit-filled Christian. In fact, a mean-spirited Christian is the type of Christian that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 5, referred to as having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Think about it like this. He says, add to your godliness, where'd it go? Add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. Add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. So he says over here, he says that there is a type of professing believer. They profess to be a believer in Christ that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. The power of godliness is brotherly kindness. Think on that. The power of godliness. That's why he said add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. The power of godliness is brotherly kindness. So if we think that godliness means that I want everybody to see how righteous I am because that's what it means to be godly, you should be righteous, but you're not trying to prove to everybody you're righteous. Let me explain it to you like this. Let me explain this to you this way for you Yankees. A person who is genuinely spiritual will never have to try and prove to you how spiritual they are. A genuinely spirit-filled person, a genuinely spiritual person will never have to try and prove to you how much they pray. A genuinely spirit-filled person will never have to tell you all the kind things that they do for others. A genuinely spirit-filled person will never try to put on display their own righteousness. Because a genuinely spiritual person has a grave image of themselves in the fact that they realize that if it were not for the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ, they would still be the same shipwreck they were before they met the man called Jesus the Nazarene. And they're going to have that disposition and they're going to have that attitude on a consistent basis, continually unpacking and realizing from their own heart that it's Jesus, only Jesus, that makes me who I am. Paul said, there is no good thing that dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, get this. He wrote that. He wrote that in a state of mind where he was more spirit-filled than you or I will ever be. You know how I know that? Because when Paul wrote that, he was being what we Bible scholars, I'm not a Bible scholar, I'm just a redneck preacher, but here's what Bible, here's what Bible scholars, here's how Bible scholars describe the, the condition of Paul's heart and mind in the moment that he wrote that in Romans chapter number seven. We call that plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration means that literally God was speaking to Paul in such a way that God said, Paul, write the word there. Is. No good thing. And word by word, verb by verb, noun by noun, adjective by adjective, God's spirit dictated to Paul what he should write. And so when Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh, in the moment that he penned those words, he was more filled with the Holy Spirit than you or I have ever been. And yet he said, I want you to know, Any good thing comes out of me is not me. It's the Spirit of Christ dwelling in me. I'm going to make a statement that could make your head spin. So be prepared. Buckle your proverbial seatbelt. But I do not have to agree with you to be nice to you. 
It's radical, man. I don't have to agree to be nice. And, and being nice does not mean that I agree or condone. It just means that I'm mature enough to disagree with you without being disagreeable toward you. <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? I told you, that's that. I mean, that's heavy duty. I don't have to agree with you to be nice to you. I don't have to agree with your lifestyle to love you. I don't have to think you're living right in order for me to treat you right. Because brotherly kindness dictates to me that even if you don't line up with who I am and what I represent, as a human being that's no more deserving of the grace of God than anybody else in this world, I have an understanding in my heart that you and I may not agree and we may not see eye to eye, but I ought to love you just the same. That's being mature. Being mature is not having to prove to everybody in every Facebook thread that you're smarter than they are. That's coming from a guy who has a hard time continuing to scroll down sometimes. <laughs> Don't you? You ever come across something and go, what? You're going down. Because everybody knows the world's going to be changed through Facebook debates and encounters. Brotherly kindness means that you don't have to talk the way that I think you should talk or wear what I think you should wear or live where I think you should live or do what I think you should do. You don't have to do any of those things for me to treat you with love and compassion. In fact, Jesus spent the majority of his time with people whose lives represented things that are polar opposite to who he is in nature. Think about this. Where I come from, one of the worst things you can call somebody is a compromiser. Because in my faith background, how strong a preacher is and how strong a Christian is is defined by the stand that they take and how strong that they are in their beliefs and convictions. That's how spirituality is defined. And so to call someone a compromiser is just one of the most horrible things you can call them, honestly. You stinking compromiser. It's like, whoa, I'm just fighting words. You, you know what I'm saying? You wascally wabbit. I mean, shoot you down for saying stuff like that. But here's what the Holy Spirit taught me one day. God's the greatest compromiser that ever lived. Now, for some of you, knowing your background, that ought to kind of like trip you out for anybody to say that because that's almost like calling God a dirty word. Comprom you're calling God a compromiser? Well, let me ask you this. When the Bible says that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not think it robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, stop and think about what that means. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the God of all creation. John chapter 1 already taught us that. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, Jesus, there was not anything made that was made. He's God in the flesh. And yet being God in the flesh, he'd made himself no reputation. But here's the reputation he did make for himself, which is not a reputation at all. The reputation Jesus made for himself is that he is friends with publicans and sinners. He hangs around drunks 
He hangs around whores. He spends his time around the offscoring of society. He's not hanging out with the religious crowd. Jesus is spending his time with the people that no one else wants to be around. That's the reputation he made for himself. So you tell me, yes or no, is the holy God of heaven, I'm talking about the one who set the standard for righteousness and holiness and what's good, the God who made everything and set every standard, lowered himself to a point where he identified with drunks, harlots, and the worst of the worst in society. You know what he did? God made a compromise to bring us to himself. He became less so that I could become more. And he built a bridge at Calvary so that those who are dirty, those who are broken, those who are unclean can enter into a place that the Bible says nothing unclean, nothing unrighteousness can enter into this city. Jesus made a compromise so that I could go to heaven someday. So you can call me a compromiser because Jesus made the greatest compromise when the holy God of heaven identified himself with unholy people and he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be made righteous and we could be made whole. And so this morning, no matter where you are in the journey, Whatever step, you might not even have taken the first step. The first step is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, and you have to receive it by faith. So if you've never taken the first step of faith and received Christ as your Savior, that's the step you need to take today. Maybe you've taken a few steps and you've gotten to the point of knowledge, but you've never learned how to apply that knowledge in a loving, compassionate, kind way. Well, then today, take that step. By the help of God, proceed forward to this place where you can get to know Jesus on a higher level because it's a process of step by step by step.